Welcome to Swanglinese, the only podcast talking the language of business here in the Middle East. Your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Andermo, give you their own insights, as well as interviewing business leaders in the region to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Barry, Oscar, let's talk Swanglinese. Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of Swanglinese. In the studio this week, I have the pleasure of Natalie Banks joining me. Hi, Natalie. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on board. Absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you today after our um, online introduction, and I'm just eager to get into your story. Our whole uh, podcast is is about um, people who've done some pretty spectacular things, starting businesses here in the UAE specifically. But usually what we like to do is go back in time. And uh, before we start talking about how we got here, talking virtually uh, in the UAE, um, back to sort of the beginning of of Natalie's career in terms of, well, where did you start? How did it start? Uh, Touching on some of the things that you've learned along the way, and then we'll get up to up to 2021 in due due course. (laughs) Okay, so my I went to university to become a journalist, which I actually did. I graduated as a print journalist and I did work in print journalism and in radio journalism for a little bit um, back in the day when they Mm -hmm. used to have radio journalists. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then um, my journey, so I ended up working, moving into the other opposite side where I was actually a media advisor for politicians for around 15 years in, in federal, local and state government. So basically it was sort of teaching people how to handle the media, I guess, how to manage the media, how to best sort of keep your key statements and don't veer off them and all those kinds (laughs) of things. And constantly getting frustrated that my talent never did what I told them to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and that's exactly what I was doing when in 2014 I was was in Western Australia and, and the state was looking at introducing a policy to cull or kill sharks as a way of, preventing shark bites in in Australia. So Perth particularly had seen an increase in shark encounters over the last couple of years. And so there was a little bit of fear generated, particularly in the political scene, but also too just in the the beach community. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the politicians at the time thought a great way of handling that would be um, to kill these sharks as a way of preventing shark encounters. Right. Sure. I had just literally months, literally prior to this introduction of policy, be- become a qualified diving instructor. And as a diver, one of the things that I used to love seeing, and I still love seeing them today, is seeing sharks in your dive. Obviously, when you want to see them, um, yeah. there's a completely different way if you're diving and you don't want to see the sharks, and that's not a pleasant experience. But of, of all the times that I've been diving, sharks are one of the things you, you really hope to see. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and you plan, hopefully, to see those sharks. Um, I have dived with tiger sharks and bull sharks and white sharks, but white sharks in a cage. I've only dived um, in cages with white sharks. The other sharks I have dived with, um, outside of the edge, without any without any fear whatsoever, it's <laughs> majestic actually. Yeah, and um, and so I was adamantly opposed to this policy because they the, those three species of sharks were the ones that the government was actually looking at killing. Right. Um, and the more I started researching this policy, the more I started to realize I had history on my side because. Previously, Hawaii had tried to kill tiger sharks as a way of preventing shark encounters. And over 14 years, there was no decrease in shark bites. 
We had the scientific field on our side as well, and over 360 uh, scientists wrote to the Premier of Western Australia to say this policy is incorrect and not the right way to go about it, and there's other ways you could do it. So whilst my gut feel was this is wrong, um, I actually had history and science mm -hmm. on my side as well. Um, and I, as a, as a member of the government in terms of the employee base, I thought I'd be able to get a meeting or at least have a talk to some of the policymakers, but they just shut me down. And so I just come back from a two-year stint in Abu Dhabi and I was back in Australia, which is my hometown, and I thought I have a voice here and so I'm going to use it. And uh, we decided to rally in the Premier's electorate at a beach in his electorate, which happens to be also a very big tourism beach mm -hmm. called Cotisco. And we did it twice and we had over 8,000 people show up at the rally and it ended up going national and then international because the Premier was travelling in South Africa, so the South Africans also rallied and then nearly every, like, it just was something like I, I ended up being around 30 different countries we ended up having supporting against this policy. And that ended up having Richard Branson support the campaign. It ended up with Ricky Gervais holding up a sign saying No Shark Cull, which was the name of the charity I had started as a result of this. And then I got pushed out of my job as a media advisor for the government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah, as I look back, was no surprise. But it was a tormenting time at that time because I, I didn't feel like I was speaking out against. I was working for the Department of Housing and the Department of Health around that time, so nothing to do with fisheries. But I understand the political scene a little bit more, like hindsight, this 2020 vision. And that, that, that became my catalyst for change, really, to where I am today. A right. Lot of my, yeah. And so with that being the start of it, obviously, at home, as it were, and then um, the stint here. So how what was the transition then to being here for the, uh, air quote, permanently rather than back there? Was it this move out of the job? And therefore, how did it evolve into... So it's the, the next natural step of obviously no shark coal was the initial foundation. Is that still going or is that sort of transitioned into, or oh, tell us, tell us. Yeah, <laughs> no, sadly, when I came to Dubai, I had hoped that I'd be able to keep it operating. But sadly, um, I was I just came to the realisation it wasn't going to be viable for me being in Dubai. So I moved to Dubai initially. Um, me being in Dubai and no shark coal being operating in Australia, it was very difficult for that to continue. It was a grassroots charity. It only started in 2015 and mm -hmm. we ended up living in 2016. So right. I hadn't really been established enough to sort of stand on its own. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And so then you you obviously you made a, a, a move over to Dubai. Was that for uh, other was that for work? Was that for other reasons? Yeah, so I was. I ended up, funnily enough, I was out of work for the government for a month when I ended up being picked up by a marine conservation organisation that paid me to undertake the campaigning that I was doing. Amazing. So that dream job, I was absolutely in my element. And we won. We won the campaign to stop that policy and reverse it so that it was no longer operating. And once that happened, we then started to focus on the east coast of Australia so I was very much centred around, unfortunately, what happened was the cluster of shark bites moved from Western Australia to a place around called Ballina Byron Bay, around that area of New South Wales. 
And so I found myself having to be pulled over to the East Coast frequently because they have shark nets and drum lines like they were introducing in Western Australia. They've had those there since the 1930s. And so I felt that I had a role to play in New South Wales and in the next state above it is called Queensland, where they both have, they also have drum lines. And so a lot of my time was being centred on that side of Australia, away from my husband who was in Perth in Western Australia. And uh, he ended up getting a, a tap on the shoulder saying there's a job opportunity in Dubai. Huh. And would he would he be interested in it? Um, so I, I basically said, best of luck. I, I, will, I, I wish you all the best. I think you should go for it. It's an amazing opportunity. We had lived in Abu Dhabi previously, so I knew what the country was like. And I felt as though marine conservation wasn't such a big thing as what mm-hmm. it is. Australia um it's quite it's quite competitive actually in Australia right so I think in some ways Mm. um and so uh for three months basically I had an internal dilemma taking place about whether or not I'm making the right decision (laughs) and uh as fate would have it I ended up getting um bronchitis and was on the verge of pneumonia and was actually hospitalized just a, a day before my husband was meant to fly and, um, and if, of course, your first thing that you do when you're sick and you're not acting as superwoman is call out for the, for the people around you the most that you, you love and cherish. And so I'm on the phone to my husband just thinking this would take him not just a couple of hours but days for him to get back to me if, this, if this was, he was in Dubai. And this, this was a turning point for me because that, that evening I ended up just saying, I'm coming with you. Oh, wow. <laughs> the rest of history. So I ended up having to tell my boss who knew the dilemma I was going through and mm-hmm. just what he thought I was doing the right thing. Most people actually said it's just a job. But I, um, for me, I had the dream job. It wasn't just a job. It was like being able to change policy and get mm-hmm. paid to do that. Like that to me was like I was in literally in my element. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, making a difference and being paid to do it. I mean, like you say, I think for for a lot of people that is, but it's also, I think it's really important and interesting, you know, the decision that you made, because actually the job's the job, but your your network and the people around you, as much as the job is the job, it's without that support network, sometimes you're thinking, okay, I do love this. This is amazing. But when when it comes to the crunch time, like, oh, my sister lives in Australia and she's like, yeah, well, it's not like we can just turn around and jump on a plane will be there in an hour. It's, a, you know, it's 24 hours worth of traveling this way and the other in time differences uh, to get back. And sometimes you just, you do want that support network close. It's interesting because it's a dilemma for a lot of expatriates, I think, because of course, family being at home and then you make a decision to go somewhere, there's there's repercussions for that. And uh, and I think sometimes it, it, it comes home to roost for one of a better, you think, oh, I, I do want to do this, but do I want to do it without that person or without my family? Or does that sort of trump it? And it's it's interesting. Obviously, family won out for, for you and uh, brought you over here. Um, yes. So, I mean, they, they knew that the dilemma that you were going through and the struggle, and you obviously made a decision from that side of things. So I'm assuming there was no ill will with you leaving that from that side of things. But of course, um, I hope I'm right in saying that that aside from being the dream job it was the dream job because it was something that you were truly passionate about as well in terms of the the ocean and so forth so you make the move you come back to the middle east you're into dubai and uh, what what's next for natalie what what happens next <laughs> okay so there was no ill with my previous job i stay on and i still am staying on as an advisor today to that organization Brilliant. um 
So definitely that's something that I still have a passion and, and passion-driven work is really what, what has led me to do what I am now doing. Um, so for four months, I basically tried to look for a work in the field that I currently have um, moved from in Australia. So I was knocking on the doors of marine conservation organisations already established in, in the UAE, um, particularly in Dubai, because I obviously wanted to work. I moved over to Dubai, so I wanted to work with my husband as well. <laughs> Um, and unfortunately, I had no, I had no WASTA. Uh, I had no networks, and unfortunately, emails went unanswered, phone calls went unanswered. I even actually ventured out on my first couple of weeks in Dubai um, to one of the offices, only to realise that they were in the middle of a move. So, it, like, it's almost again, I feel like it's fate has a, 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 a stay in this, because um, it was almost like saying, you know, this is not the path for you. Yeah. Um, and I was just getting, I'm such a person who's so active and I knew I had so much to give in this space that I was just started getting so frustrated that I was just sort of at home twiddling my thumbs trying to figure out what exactly I was going to do. And so I phone called to my mother and various conversations to my husband would, would sort of say, you've done something similar in Australia and set up your own organisation, so why don't you do something in, in the UAE? which I didn't want to do because I didn't feel like I understood the law. I didn't understand the, the, the country and how it operated and all the things I wanted to sort of have time to learn before mm. I sat out on my own as you would normally. Um, and it's not as easy as I want to set up my own not-for-profit, please tell me the steps I need to go through well, here. I definitely um, want to get into that because that's so true and it's something that I don't want to gloss over because setting up a, a normal business has is, is got its own issues. But going down that route, we'll, we'll get to um, in, yeah. in due course as well. But So you, you're obviously having this, this idea. There isn't a blueprint yeah. <laughs> for doing yeah. this. Um, yeah, so, so, so I basically then, then needed to do a bit of a ring around us to, to let the authorities know that this is what I wanted to do and how do I go about doing it and what's the best what's the best um, uh, organisation or entity or authority to set up what I'm trying to achieve. Um, so I basically was trying to replicate um, what was happening in Australia and replicate it in the UAE. Nice. So, and that came with, uh, you know, a lot of uh, challenges because fundraising and donations are just something that's nowhere near as easily run in in the UAE as it is compared to in my home country in Australia. Mm. You just need to go to one location in Canberra, tell them everything you want to do, you get your permit and your authorities to fundraise and, and off you go and, and you know you just need to report back to them once a year. Right. Um, it's very different. It's a very different landscape here. Yeah, it is. And I mean, do you want to get into that? I mean, so is this in, in view of you setting up ASRAC? Is this what was that? Yeah. The, yeah. So with, yeah. with that in mind, and we're going to talk about your that that not-for-profit entity, it is so different. And there's a lot of, um, I know personally, people who've gone through this because there are legal implications for raising funds without the appropriate licensing and authority and so forth. So as there isn't really a blueprint for it, how did you actually navigate that? How did you even know that that was the case in the first place? Because it wouldn't be such a, you know, such a stretch of the imagination to think, well, this is how it works at home. I'm going to come here and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And then you obviously get punished for that. How did you navigate those waters? So I guess one of the things that I have to say, being a journalist, has made sure that I'm a good researcher, that I do a lot of my research uh, online. Uh, Dr. Google becomes my friend and I, I read 
I read reports. So I, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to getting information, but I've always been known as someone who can do very, very good research in terms of gathering information. Um, so I must have read about this. Um, it would have been definitely because I know I remember seeing news reports about mm. fundraising being an issue. Um, however, I basically spoke to various authorities and, and eventually everyone kept saying the Community Development Authority was where I needed to actually go. And so I went. I went and knocked on their door and, and at least they were there. They, they, they yes. were a little they weren't moving. They weren't moving. <laughs> uh, and they were there. So again, fate. And and I have to say, I was really, I was really impressed with the advice that I was given, the templates that they provided in terms of this is what you need to do. Um, and we got told we needed to start a board in order to operate. Um, we needed to register our constitution. Um, and you know, the information was there, but it's it's sort of like here's the information. Um it's, I don't know, it's like being given the details of, of a party but not given the directions in some ways to where, how you're going to go because it, the information was there. But for someone who was brand new to the country, I didn't know where the courts were, the notary mm. courts were. Like all of that information, again, I'm having to, it's it's just that extra couple of steps that you need to take in order to, to make it work. Yeah. But I'm nothing but determined. Yeah, well, no, I think that determination and persistence are perhaps two of those characteristics that if you are going to go down the route of starting any kind of business, let alone a not-for-profit, uh, that you, you've got to, uh, I suppose, in your plan now, knowing what you know, you have to plan for that buffer of, of extra steps. And if you think that this is going to happen in one week, give it two or three weeks. If you think that you're going to start in, you know, give it some more time because it is going to be, whilst it's there and, you know, they say, yeah, well, go to this office and speak to this person and then you get this permit. And of course you go to that office, you speak to this permit and they say, oh no, uh, no, you, you can't have that permit. You need this, this, and go and speak to that person. Like, Okay, uh, that wasn't. And where, where's this written down? No, it's not written down. Don't worry, just go and do it. And you kind yeah. of <laughs> go round and round, and eventually you get the bit of paper that you need. Um, but I think that it, it's so true that it's it's got a lot better over the years. I think um, from again, I'm, I'm not speaking from a not for profit side of things because I don't have that experience. But it is, it's got easier that there are more templates. There are more. Um, directions, if you like, on, on where to go. And when they tell you to go here and do this, oh, it, it was there and it did happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and great, I got what I wanted. There's still the odd exception. I'm very well aware of that. But it is interesting also from um, from your perspective that it was it a conscious decision to go down the not-for-profit route rather than set up a commercial entity to do what you're doing in terms of uh, and why that wouldn't work perhaps again it's my naivety of because i've seen what you do and i'm thinking well is there, would there be a commercial side to this from a, an organizational or what was the thinking behind going down the not-for-profit route yeah, it's a really good question so based upon what i had seen work well in australia i wanted to one use a volunteer member base to actually undertake the activities so it's almost like forming a a, a sense of community Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing which I don't think the, the setting up a company really is supportive of. We wanted to do undertake our fundraising campaign, so which which we're yet to do because we haven't yet secured that permit. <laughs> um, we wanted to uh, so undertake movie screenings and, and educate school programs, um, beach cleanups. And when I went to speak to advisors in terms of what I was trying to achieve, they're saying there is no business that you can set up that enable you to do the things that you're wanting to do. 
Mm. There's no as in a permit. You would need to get various permits for all the various activities. And so I kept on thinking, well, the, the Community Development Authority keeps looking as though it's the place for us to be registered. Um, I know that social enterprises are looking at becoming more of a, uh, a common um, registration now, although mm. I don't, at the time it definitely wasn't something that was talked about much. It was there, but it wasn't, you couldn't go in and start, ask for a social enterprise permit. Uh, yeah. And I was thinking if that's actually the case today, to be honest. Right. Um, yeah. So, but even still, a social enterprise would not be wanting to look at what we're trying to do. We're trying to achieve business, uh, uh, helping businesses by providing volunteer base to to do their corporate social responsibility, to activate their uh, our own members, to get them out and do beach cleans and things like that. That's not something that is a commercial product to begin with, one yeah. unless corporate social responsibility. But we want to be both. We want to do the activity ourselves when COVID allows us to, where it's, where it's activating our members, and we want to do CSR for corporates as well. So there's a commercial entity that comes into that side of things, which, again, as a not-for-profit, that actual setup enables you to do. Right, yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think that's also a very good point because you have to, uh, in 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 any business, you have to be able to find that label on the list when you say, "Well, no, I am going to do this, so this is what I will be known as as a business." Yeah. And if, if it's not there, then the conversation goes off script, and people say, "Well, um, I don't know what to tell you because if it's yeah. not on the list, then it's not on the list. You can't do that." And you think, "Oh, yeah, you there must be a way of doing it." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <you> <laughs> activity yeah. yeah 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 so that that makes sense i mean and again that's very good um information for for people looking at especially with the rise of social enterprises now in terms of people wanting to uh, and i think it's a great movement they want to do something good with their business as in have a positive impact uh, and then maybe there is some commercial gain from it as well but whether or not that's feasible because you as you said everything revolves around your license and your permits here if you can't get the right permits then you you very dangerous water if you decide to go ahead with it anyway because it's just not um well, it's not democracy and you'll be punished for it so we don't want to go down that route really um so that obviously brings us up to i guess well not up to date but we can talk about that, that that's what you're doing now because I, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about it so tell me about the the the, the name first of all because i love i like the the story behind that and then maybe just into a bit more detail about some of the things that you are trying to achieve and what you're doing because i've seen some of the stuff the the youth ambassador bit i really want to focus on because that, that rings uh very true with something that i'm doing but tell us a bit more about what you're doing now and, and how it's going what it's doing what what you really ultimately want to achieve with it Sure. So ASRAC in Arabic means blue. And so that defines the environment that we actually are operating in. I was looking for an Arabic word that sort of gave a nod of, a, of approval to, or not of approval, but just a nod of appreciation is the word mm. to the country that we're operating in. Um, and so I always, I have, it's one of those words that's easy to say in English. I mean, even though it's Arabic, uh, when I was sort of found ASRAC, it's not a difficult word to say. And of course, then it's associated with the color of the environment we actually are trying to conserve and protect. I, I thought it was perfect. We had basically, we had a, a, a competition with our members to come up with their names, what the entity would be called. And we did a poll with our members on Facebook. Facebook we set a Facebook group back then. And, uh, and ASRAC won. So as a result, that's how ASRAC came to be. And then mm -hmm. we started to do our logo around that name as well. And that also gives a lot of appreciation to the country we operate in because 
that logo of ASRAC actually has the UAE country landscape behind the whale shark that actually features in the in the logo. Yeah. Um, that's a little bit about ASRAC and how it came to be. And then the activities that we started to, to um, focus on. The first one was marine conservation. So somebody who had come from shark conservation in Australia, um, it's a very controversial topic because you have you have um, family members who have lost loved ones from, from shark encounters and you have survivors who are dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder who are not in very, in very good mental health space at all. And I caught a lot of abuse for what I was trying to do in terms right. of trying protect um, uh, sharks um, but I'm not again not someone to fear away from those things it's more I wanted to find something particularly in in the country I was beginning to operate in that wasn't as controversial let's just start with something that no one can really criticize you about which is picking up rubbish from the beach yeah <laughs> um, so and, and again at there's so many things you don't think about. And, and one of those things, we couldn't get a permit for Dubai for ages. Um, Just to so do the beach cleanups? Get, no. So we couldn't mm. get, and it didn't, and like, it was a source of frustration for me because well, I was just thinking we're only, we're just trying to do good, you know. Like, mm. again, I don't have the roster. We did end up having to, as part of the new law, so we got our permit in September. And in October, new laws were introduced and we needed to get two local board members onto our board as well. So we did actually have local board members who then was able to, we were able to utilise to help um, get us those, an understanding or help us get the permits, if that makes mm. sense. So, yeah. um, where, and they could speak the local language. I can't speak Arabic and, and so I wish I could because it would be a massive advantage to what I do. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't. And so I, I would utilise our Arabic-speaking board members to help those communications um, come to fruition. And only when we had one of the um, Arabic-speaking board members at the meetings were we able to understand that they were concerned that we were going to share show Dubai in a bad light right. because we would be... This had not even entered my mind that mm -hmm. collective debris could be seen as deterring tourism and of course, this, I mean, it makes sense to me now as I talk to you, but <laughs> it had not even entered my mind that that would be something that that would be concerned about. Mm -hmm. And so once they realised that that was, was not our intention at all, um, we were able to get our permits. But during those six months, we ended up just saying, okay, if we can't do the activity in Dubai, at least allow us to sort of try and partner with governments in other Emirates and and show ourselves and what our members can actually do. So that six months of time, I think also that we're able to show the authorities in Dubai that we were, you know, you could trust us at least at least yeah. a little bit. Um, <laughs> other Emirates had it and without any any issues. So eventually we got given our permit and now the authorities come to our cleanups whenever we host them. So we have a very good relationship with them. It's just not something that I even considered as mm. a potential but again, so going back to that controversial view, I was thinking this will be very easy. No one will be. No, I won't upset anybody by doing a clean up. Uh, click up, yeah. Um, but again, it's it's just the understanding, and I'm really grateful to that Arabic speaking board member because we would not have been able to understand what the concern was, nor um, push forward without that conversation taking place. And now yeah. we, as I said, have a great relationship with 
with majority of them. actually there's not one authority we don't have a great relationship with yeah so. that's really really valid point because we've had a couple of other people say the same thing that actually having a local partner or board member in this this case uh, but uh, one that actually is open to both sides of of the table as it were that's looking out for the best interest of the entity but also understands what's coming back from the other side and it's, it's communication at the end of the day isn't it? it's this you're like oh yeah I guess that is yeah. a big thing. We would never have thought about it. And if somebody hadn't been able to actually get in there and say, what, what yeah. is it? <laughs> What's the problem? And yeah. say that this is the problem. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, well, we can fix that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that was the frustrating part because until we knew what the problem was, we couldn't do anything at all to try and overcome that. So, so Marine Debris was the first campaign that we ended up focusing on or the mission. And so we, we did a couple of um, initiatives around items that make up um, marine debris. So it's like talking about um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions or the, the impacts um, to the greenhouse. So many things play a role in that, that what we wanted to do was break down what does marine debris mean exactly. Um, so we started to focus on the first campaign was straws. Mm -hmm. um, and we copied a campaign that was being run in the US very successfully called Stop Sucking, and we you, we made it local. We um, our partnered with, well, actually Freedom Pizza partnered with ASAC. They asked us if we would like to join the initiative, and they were wanting to just say this is what they're doing, and then they would that that would be it. You know, that would be the rest of the that's the campaign type thing, which we were willing to support. But I was actually thinking, why don't we keep running with this and and see how many we can get sign on to removing or reducing their plastic straw use right. throughout the country. So that took us 12 months to run that initiative and we had over 56 outlets sign on to say that they were going to remove or reduce their plastic straw use. Brilliant. And those outlets included things like Jamura Restaurant Group, which have like 10 restaurants in their uh -huh. organisation, so millions of straws, Gates yeah. Hospitality, Millions of stores have been stopped as a result of that annually, um, as, as a result of that campaign. So, and that was the first one that we launched. And it keeps, to me, it's almost like a shining light. This is how, what we can do when we put heads together and we focus on, on uh, a result. What, mm. what is that result and keep working on achieving that result. And that's where the membership comes in handy as well, because the members start being activated and they start getting people involved and all of a sudden you've got a bigger and better um, campaign. Definitely. Yeah, and then and then we've gone into useless utensils, we've gone into cigarette butts because cigarette butts are the number one item we find along the coastal or urban cleanup. And um, so we focused on that and then I had to introduce my Apex Harmony, my shark campaign, because mm -hmm. that's my baby and that's something I, I, I can talk about with a lot of knowledge and, and uh, experience. And then we've got the dolphin. The dolphin defence program is all about the local dolphins that um, actually are resident to this country, so the Arabian dolphins mainly. Um, and then we've got, we started then focusing at the mangroves and the planting the mangrove trees, which have been a really successful campaign. And just recently last year, we introduced the coral reef campaign. And you mentioned the youth ambassador program, which Funnily enough, that campaign, the Coral Reef campaign, came about all because of our youth ambassadors. 
Right. Okay. So tell me, tell me a bit more about it because it's something that's uh, close to my heart because I run another initiative called Beat the Cyberbully, which is uh, going into schools and talking to students and parents and teachers around cyberbullying prevention, online misuse, and some of the pitfalls of, of the digital world that we spend a lot of time in. And one of the things that I wanted to do right from the beginning when we started in 2014 was a, a, an ambassador program getting the youngsters actually to a point where they could stand up and do a little bit of the presentation. It's going to be far more better received than me as the old guys. I'm not as young as I think I am. I'm an old guy stood at the front of the room, maybe engaging a few of them, but if the, you know, the head of school or the head of the, the gymnastics or the football team or whatever it is, is stood there giving this message, it resonates. Um, and lack of resource on our point meant that I could, haven't been able to do that. So when I saw this on yours, I was like, oh, I want to talk to Natalie about that because it sounds like you're doing exactly what I think makes an impact, perhaps even more so than some of us as, as adults when the next generation get involved. So please do tell me, A, how you did it, because <laughs> I'm intrigued, and, and what it actually entails. So I remember having a conversation with uh, an entity and saying to them, you know, the, the people who are being impacted by our decisions as a business are the next generation. Mm -hmm. So really they should be having a seat at the table. And I, I remember vouching, saying this and sort of hearing my own voice and, and sort of like having the finger point back at myself and thinking this is something we should do. Um, uh, and so it was a brainchild of mine um, and I sort of, you know, we have an operations team. We have 20 people who volunteer as an operations team member, um, which is amazing. And so I sort of wanted to run it past them and we had a majority uh, agree that this would be a campaign that would be very good for ASRA. Um, we wanted to ensure that there was some type of, um, I guess, reward for the, for the youth ambassadors, not just coming on and saying I'm a youth ambassador and, and they just sit there. We wanted to ensure that there was like a, a program that supported them and their goals and, their, and what they wanted to achieve. So the first year was a lot of learning curve because we were trying to understand exactly how this works. But basically, the program still operates the same today. We basically have um, the youth ambassadors are able to apply to become a youth ambassador and will undertake an interview with myself. Right. As the founder. And so, and so I, I, to me, I then am asking them about, you know, their confidence. I'm sort of looking into are they someone who can speak on behalf of youth? Um, do they feel confident to do so? Can they put together a presentation and talk about, about things that are passionate to them? And we, we decided to initially um, have the Youth Ambassador Program for 12-year-old to 18-year-old um, okay. applicants. Uh, but I was given a few applicants for 10-year-olds and I thought, oh, look, I'll just have to interview anyway, you know, it won't hurt. And I was absolutely flabbergasted by right. how much the youth know in this mm -hmm. space and so much more than our generation ever did, so much more. I've already, I knew that, but I guess I wasn't prepared for how well they were mm -hmm. able to present that information and yeah, 10-year-olds today are in a completely different field to the 10-year-olds of our day. <laughs> they are. It's something that in, in my line of work with that, I've, I've had conversations with 12-year-olds where I'm having to sort of keep my face straight thinking, how do you know this? You're 12. How A, how do you know about that? How do you know how to operate that? But this is from a digital perspective. That's their world. And access to that world gives them information. And so they're fully yeah. versed with what's going on. But then, like you say, how they're at 10 years old able to then 
take that and turn it into a presentation on the subject and you're sat there thinking amazing absolutely yeah. fantastic yes <laughs> you you definitely should be the face of this or i want you involved in this somehow if that's all right with with mum and dad because you almost forget for a minute that they're 10 and that somebody's yeah. got to give them permission to do this still <laughs> yeah so we ended up lowering that age group and now we have uh last count was 17 youth ambassadors but in our first year i think we had about 12 and what we would do is we basically would ask them, this is what makes up ASRAC, whether it be at the education team, the retail side of things, whether it's the social media side of things, everything that you need to run a business. Mm -hmm. uh, what areas are you most interested in? And what we can do is find a mentor for you to be mentored in that area and to achieve certain goals that you can speak with your mentor that you want to achieve in the time that you're with us. So we thought it would always just be 12 months and then they'll go, okay, I've, I've you know, done my extra homework outside my school hours and they would go. But as a matter of fact, most of them, if only one dropped out from the first year and have continued on to the second year. So I, again, really was amazed. And um, we've got a lead ambassador. Our lead ambassador attends our operations meetings and also our strategy meetings. And he speaks on behalf of the youth as a group. So what he would do is sort of gather the information from the youth about what they think is the most important topics of the day that perhaps we're not focusing on, or we'll, we'll give them some direction. We'll say, this is what we're going to be focusing on on this meeting. We'd love to understand what the youth think about this. And then, and then he will be the mouthpiece between them and the operations team. He's 17. So last year we had a female who was 15. And, and now we have a, a Albert who is 17 and he is incredible. I am wow. just by his ability to manage just, I mean, just management skills and leadership skills as well that come with these youth um, ambassadors. It's just amazing. So it's worked out very well. And we do, we've had a couple of brainstorming sessions with them where we're looking at introducing things like workshops for the youth. And so, you know, what do you think we should do? What would be of interest? We've had a couple of dilemmas where the organisation was stuck and we were like, which way should we go? We're on a 50-50. And the operations team had said to me, can we go out to the youth and ask them? Wow. So and I think that's fantastic. I think that having a seat, a, a youth voice at the table is highly important for the areas that we work in, which is all about decisions being made today, but for future generations. Yeah. So, uh, and the Coral Reef Program came out of last year's group of um, students where in September, and we'll do this same exercise this year, we said to the team, what is an area that we're not focusing on that you would like to see ASRAC focus on? And the Coral Reef Program came out well and truly ahead of everything else. Yeah. Fantastic. I think it's so, so true as well that, that they are the voice of the next generation and that, that they do especially in the kind of business that you have they do warrant a seat there because and this is something that i've seen as well they think about things differently than we do they have a different outlook on on some of the problems and there dare i say it because I, I sometimes advocate for less time in the online space but because they have so much access they are perhaps more informed than we are in certain areas this because uh, much like yourself when you're doing your research you get right into it they they do that kind of research whilst they're stood in the queue for you know for the cinema or whatever they're just scanning 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 and absorbing all of this stuff and then you ask them an opinion and they reel it all off I'm like oh okay yeah um that's a great idea and, and it's not something we'd ever looked at and uh, a big fan of that especially where it is 
potentially possible within an organization to have that access, which again is why I was really excited when I saw that and I was like, oh, I really want to talk to Natalie about that. Um, because I think it's it does, it taps into something that I'm really passionate about. And it just is part of my messaging as well that they they're going to fix the problems that we've created because they're going to be coming at it from a different headspace. And we can't fix our problems thinking about it with the same brain that caused it. So, um, so, so important. Are there any, um, any projects for the future that you're able to talk about from Azrax perspective that are upcoming um, that would be of interest? Cause I would like to get into that and also then just talk about how people can get involved um, from that sure. side of things. So recently we've just launched the Shop Sustainable Fashion campaign. So this is the campaign we launched on the 1st of March. So it's only one month and a, and a couple of weeks old. Um, so this campaign is talking about the impacts of the fashion industry on the environment, particularly the marine environment. A lot of people don't actually realise that um, a lot of the clothes that we, get, we wear that are made out of synthetic fibres, when they are washed, they are shredded and microplastics come off these clothing and then go into the grey water through the washing machine, straight out through the sewage plants. And unfortunately, the sewage plants, they actually can only... Um, filter out up to nanoplastics and so the nanoplastics are released back into the oceans and then they're impacting the marine life uh, which if we eat or choose to consume fish then is impacting ourselves so um, it, it's a vicious cycle so we're eating our clothing <laughs> in a right. way um, and so we're wanting to raise awareness of this issue but not just that about what can be done about mm. this so there's there's so many things today that we can do and so there's some technology that we can utilize so there's things called corables and, and guppy friend wash bags and microplastic filters that you can choose to put into your washing machine but mm. also also too trying to get people to sort of look at their labels and understand you know what is natural and what is synthetic and and just having questionnaires lately even asking of the brands and outlets there is such a confusion in terms of what is a natural fiber and mm. what is a synthetic fiber and so we've tried to build a lot of clarity around that but also raise awareness around that that if it's a man-made product or a man-made textile that's generally a synthetic fiber a natural fiber is something that is naturally made mm. um so and so obviously we want to try to get people to try and think about you know purchasing clothing that is made from natural fibers so your linens and your silks and things like that right it, I, so that is coming out out with a directory so what what we've done is build a directory whereby you can actually have a brand or an outlet in this directory that you can then as a consumer go okay where do i go to get my sustainable fashion from male female children this is this is the directory for that so we're, we're focusing mm. on that at the moment um, but also to what we want to do, and, and, and this is something that's a sticky point for us at the moment, but is to um, start a competition to try and see what is available locally in terms of the mindset. You talk about youth. I feel as though there's a university challenge that could actually be um, created around finding a local solution to this problem. Um, so engineering students, I think, would absolutely love this as a challenge. And so we're just trying to figure out, is this, this something that we can we can do internally, particularly with the T's and C's that have to go around that. And of course, like the sponsorship that probably needs to be raised in, in order to incentivize the students. The other yeah. thing is, the universities, is this something that's accredited, uh, like as in they get a credit for doing this, or is this an internship? So we're having to just go through how does that look like um, currently. 
So that's coming up. And then we're also looking at, at uh, expanding our underwater activities, whereby we will be looking at removing ghost nets, not just doing cleanups of debris, but also removing the abandoned fishing nets that are unfortunately right. in the local waters as well. And it's everywhere. It's, it's a global issue. So this is something that's close to my heart as a diver. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that that's something that we're looking at, at bringing out also. Amazing, amazing. I mean, I, I am a diver as well. I haven't dived for a long time with having two little kids, but it's something that I also want to get them involved with once they're of an age because I just think it's, for me, it's always been that escape. It's it's something that we don't know enough about. Um, it's beautiful down there, but it's also really tragic when you're down there and you see the amount of rubbish that that is down there and you're thinking, you know, that's us, that's humans doing that. And surely there's something that can be done, uh, which I believe is what a big part of what you're doing. And it's, it's required is education. It's education and awareness because um, coming back to the clothing side of things, it's something that, you know, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't, it wouldn't even be something that was at the forefront of my mind when buying a t-shirt to think about. It's like, it's more, does it fit? How much does it cost? Okay, done. Uh, thank you very much. But and that again, it's the lack of um, lack of awareness on my part of that until somebody actually comes and says you know this is there's a problem here you think oh okay and and until somebody does that it, it would be you know you just carry on the way that you've always done it so i think it's it's brilliant um from that side of things especially because it's for those that don't dive it's i, I highly recommend it to everybody because it's it is another world um but it's right on your doorstep especially here um you know in the uae you can very very easily um get in the water um, and once you have been, I think that people would also become more appreciative of how much damage we're actually doing um, when you, you're down there and you see some of the what was beautiful coral that's now not there. When you see some of the amazing fish and wildlife that is unfortunately swimming through plastic debris and stuff, and you think that that doesn't look great. And of course, it doesn't look great. And we're, we're causing that. So I think, again, part of the interest of talking with you, Natalie, is because it's something that I, I do also resonate with and want to, to, to try and do. I've done my, not enough, of course, but I've done little dives to do cleanups and so forth. But how does somebody get involved with that? Like you said, it's more, it's a community, it's a volunteer organization. How does somebody um, who may be listening in, I, I want to get involved, or maybe in terms of some of the activities, or maybe even involved at the, you know, the, the, I don't know, the operational level, something to be from that side of things. How, how would they go about that? So there's a variety of ways and, and our website's probably the best resource to find out the details behind it. But basically, we're a membership organisation. So we offer a free membership for those, those people who are just interested in, in only doing the, the volunteering aspects of things. So doing the cleanups, I felt like we shouldn't be charging people to clean up debris or planting mangroves, things like that. That actually is just a free um, membership. We also then offer a, a activate membership, which is 150 dirham, and that's the for, for the year. Um, and basically, we then provide that member with uh, first rights to these activities. And then they also have, um, uh, they get a whole range of discounts and offers from our eco-friendly partners. So all of our partners, gratefully, have also said, we're, we're wanting to incentivize your members to come through and purchase sustainable products through us, of course, so we'll offer 15, 20%, 30% discount to your members. So our members get an educate, oh sorry, an activate membership card. Right. Um, and then and then there's in terms of becoming an operational team member, we um, have vacancies that's also on our website under how to get involved. Under the get involved section is always a section um, that you go to. There's just a couple of menus. Um, 
Uh, so the vacancies are advertised on our website, but also too on social media. So we also too, just so that you know, we, we end up utilizing our member search first. So we, we won't go to market unless we actually feel like there's nothing in our own membership team to fill those positions. Because I, I honestly feel like we're, we're sort of, if we're looking for somebody, then we may as well work with someone who's been exposed to ASRAC in the way we operate first, if they have the skills. Mm -hmm. um, so being a member will open up your opportunities a great, a great deal more than just being a, someone who's on the sidelines, just sort of, sort of checking in and seeing what we do. We also have an events calendar that you can get involved in. Some of those, and you'll see currently most of those are members-only activities because of COVID and the social mm. regulations. We've had to monitor the numbers. But we do do cleanups for the community when it's not the way it is currently, where we can have larger groups. And, of course, anybody who's from the public that wants to get involved is able to get involved in that activity. Right. And then you've got corporates um, and uh, and sponsors who can get involved with ASRAC as well in terms of, um, I guess, providing support to ASRAC uh, in a different in a different way, way than what an individual was would be. Um, so so that be we've got an educate, motivate, and activate sponsorship program, um, and of course we provide some rewards for for their for their funding. Um, and then schools. Schools can also get involved with ASRAC. So we have member schools, so we can actually do presentations for schools. So right. they become a member of ASRAC, then we can provide the presentations to the schools as well. And, and currently a lot of those are all online. And as I said, our, our education team is now looking at introducing some workshops as well, which would be fun to do. As So bringing another element, even though that currently still needs to be on, in an online format most of the time. We can still manage those as well. So there's a there's a variety of ways to get involved with ASRAC. Depends upon what area you're coming in from and your interest in the team. Um, but yeah, just so the get involved section on the website is really your go to place. Yeah, great. And now just and then, and then you've, got, you've got the ambassador program um, also being promoted there. Unfortunately, the youth ambassador program, which is the one between ten and eighteen currently has just closed we we were searching for the youth ambassadors for 2022 from september to march this year right. but we've just opened up to university students a what's called a lead ambassador program so post postgraduates are able yeah. to apply um to become a lead ambassador and they actually go undertake a completely different process to what the youth ambassadors do whereby they have to undertake certain elements and steps to get a certificate at the end to say that they're a certified lead ambassador for ASRAC. Um, so that would be they have to do a beach cleanup, they have to do a mangrove tree planting right. day, they have to out undertake a school presentation, for example. So they go through a, a, a checkbox system, mm -hmm. and they get all the ticks in the box, and then they get given their certificate. So it's a little yeah. bit more rigid than mm. what we do with the youth ambassadors. Sure, yeah. but yeah, no, that's fantastic. And just so that um, I, I coming from you, what's your website URL so people can hear it? it and, sure. and also your social so, handles as well. Always the same as Azraq ME, so ME meaning Middle East, it's AZRAQ, AZRAQ, ME.org for the website, and AZRAQ, ME for all of our social media, whether it be LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, 
YouTube, uh, all of them. That's yeah. great. And we'll put we'll put links in. We do a little blog post as well, so we'll put those links in there. But I think it's always good for people just to hear it coming from you, uh, from that side of things. And then just to end this, because uh, I, I, we always like to do this for you as the individual, as Natalie, in terms of um, a lot of people that are listening in are either just getting out on their journey or thinking about starting their journey. And the last question I always like to ask our guests is about resources, things that you would recommend people have a look at, and it can be books, tools, mentors, uh, podcasts. It can be anything that you, as, as, as Natalie, sort of have utilized or continue to use to help you as the, as the figurehead of this organization stay on the straight and narrow and this has sort of held, held you firm since you started out on this journey. Is there anything that you would put out there for people to, to take note of? Okay, so there two things come to mind. So the first one is finding people who are doing what you are already doing and tapping into them. That's something I wish I had done. I wish I had found people who were founders of other not-for-profits and try and get information from them about the, the issues and the hiccups and all those things that, again, might have prevented some of the things that I ended up having to go through. That's right. my, first, my first recommendation in terms of resource. Try and find someone who's doing something similar to what you're doing who'd be willing to share with you that information. And the second one, which is a little bit strange, but I think it's a really important element, is I think working on yourself as a person and your leadership skills is really important to your success. And so I have to take my hat off to Brene Brown, who um, has made me look into things like shame and things that you don't even think about um, and, and sort of analyse your your views about yourself to a degree where you start saying, how am I bringing this into my field of work, into my leadership skills, and how can I overcome it? So I used to have a lot of guilt about not being perfect, not being able to get the plastic perfectly. So I have a, 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 a mouse that's made of plastic. I've got computers that have got plastic. And so I used to have this whole, I'm a hypocrite. You know, I'm mm. not doing exactly what I should be doing. I know I'm doing the best I can do. But when I, Brené Brown sort of really spells it out where she's saying, you know, think about how you perceive yourself in this arena. It's like when you the, the, the messaging about are you on the dance floor, are you watching from the balcony? Right. And then only take the advice from the people who are on the dance floor with you and not from those watching from the balcony. Right. And, so, and then she said, and if you don't feel like you've got enough, Bring people with you to who will be beside you all the time in terms of having your support. So I often found that I, I, I'm, a, I'm an independent person. I will take on it's me against the world. <laughs> but like, but, but that's not the case. You know, when I started to pause, I was able to realize now I've got 20 operational team members between us. We're all on the balcony. We're all oh, sorry. We're all on the dance dance floor. We're all undertaking that work. So how much criticism do you actually listen to? I will, I will listen to theirs because they're on the dance floor with me, but the ones on the balcony, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. yeah. You haven't walked in my shoes. You're not dancing where I am. So yeah. I listen that's to what you have to say, but I don't take on the criticism as much. That's brilliant. I think that's such sound advice. And it's funny because it tends to be those that are on the balcony have got the most to say as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's such good advice. and Get people that you are um, in it with and on the dance floor and, and in, in and around that entity um, listen. Yeah. Um, and even then, it's also, I think, I've been having this conversation with a few people recently, is that you've got to, you can take everything and listen to everything, but then you are also very clear about where you're going and 
those things that you think, oh yeah, you know what, that's I should be listening to that. That's a good idea. I should be veering a little bit. And then there's other things that you know, there's going to be things that people don't like. But okay, you like you like green, I like yellow. Well, it's going to be yellow <laughs> for as long as I can keep it yellow. Unless everybody tells me it should be green, then okay, we'll, we'll go green. But the, there's there's those levels of what you li- listen to from a critical perspective. And, and like I say, I think that's brilliant advice. That don't worry so much about what those people that don't really know what you're doing and not involved in what you're doing, but tend to have a, a very loud opinion about how it's wrong. Um, don't 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 worry so much about that. And but listen to those that are closer to you. I think that's brilliant advice. Um, and uh, I just remind re, remains for me to say thank you very much Natalie thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk with me for t- telling us your story and um, it's a really inspirational one and I'm, I'm going to be keeping an eye on, on what Azrak's doing and, and hopefully trying to get involved as well um, in, in any way that I can because it is something that is, uh, it's, it's something that I think that sh- everybody should be doing something with and uh, thank you very much for your time. You're more than welcome and again thank you for having me on I really appreciate it and your time Thanks. as well. Thanks, thanks, Natalie. And to everybody listening, thank you very much for tuning in on this episode. Um, If there is anybody that you would like us to have a chat with, then please do drop us a line at wishlist at swingthenees.rocks. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Swanglinese with your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.